0: This is yours. So today we are continuing our analysis of um, the Catechism's coverage of the Fifth Commandment, Thou shalt not kill. So last session we looked at um, the various aspects of that in terms of the dignity of human life in abortion and euthanasia and the death penalty. I noticed the, the grounding of it all is this intrinsically evil act, this universal prohibition against taking innocent human life. So in the Bible, after the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, what does that mean? What is it primarily about? It's about innocent human life. But built into that is how we relate to human life in general, the dignity of human life. So although, there are exceptions when you can take human life that isn't innocent human life. Those are understood, structured, according to that foundational principle that you may never take innocent human life. So, today, what we are looking at is two reasons when you can take human life. In self defense, of you as an individual but extending that to the community in a just war. So if we can get through the first six pages of these notes, I'll be very happy. I've taught on this topic many times. Every point, every aspect of this we look at is going to raise a thousand questions. It's fine for us today to have some questions and answers. I think that's a good way always to be processing this stuff, but I'm going to probably put a time limit on a number of the different questions on the different fields, just because it would go on forever otherwise. Okay, so starting at the first page. Um, And again, I said in our last lecture, you know, there are some people either ignorant christians or poorly catechized catholics who will say ah the bible says you cannot kill Um, well the bible itself as i said actually clarifies that right there in the same book as we get the ten commandments so can you kill in self-defense that's the question we're starting with on the first page there is all killing sinful no so first the issue of self-defense. So, Josh, can you read that? So here's Catechism's answer.
1: If,
0: if a man in self-defense uses more than necessary violence, it will be
1: unlawful. Whereas if he repels force with moderation, his defense will be lawful. Nor is it necessary for salvation that a man omit the act of moderate self-defense to avoid killing the other man. Since one is bound to take care Since one is bound... Take
0: more care of one's own life than of others. So I'm bound to take more care of my life than another's. That's because it's my life, what's been entrusted to me by the Lord. If someone's attacking me with lethal force, I can defend myself and defend myself as much as is necessary, including, if necessary, lethal force. But if you attack me with a butter knife, and I blow you away with a machine gun, that is not proportionate um, to the offense, to the attack. Um, So if I'm using more than necessary force, then it's not justified. It has to be force necessary for my defense. That's the only reason I'm using force, or should be the only reason I'm using force and this is the application the origin of the application of um, the question of the principle of double effect that we looked at a couple months ago now Um, so one action two effects I defend myself and save my life but with the side effect of taking the life of my aggressor what saves me is incapacitating my aggressor if the only way I can incapacitate him is with the lethal force then that's the only way I can incapacitate him but my action is what I'm aiming at is to incapacitate him whereas if I just didn't really like him anyway then actually it's not really about self-defense so coming in self-defense the tradition right from the beginning, always been unanimous, yes, you may use lethal force to defend yourself. But we also have a duty to defend others, to defend the weak, to defend those we are responsible for. So point B there, the defence of others. Um, so the question is sometimes said, well, is the Christian religion against war? What did the Lord Jesus say? Well, the Lord Jesus encountered soldiers on many occasions. If he was against all war, he had plenty of occasions to tell soldiers, give up your job, come follow me. Whereas he didn't say that. So, Max, can you read the quotation there? So, again, this is a quotation of a quotation. So, this is St. Augustine being quoted by St. Thomas.
2: In of Others. If the Christian religion forbade war, war altogether, those who sought salutary at in the gossip would rather have been consoled, counseled, con- counseled, advised, to cast aside their arms and to give up soldiering altogether. On the contrary, they were told, rob no man by violence or to accusions, and be content with his wages. If he commanded them to be content with their pay, he did not.
0: So the Lord Jesus did actually give specific advice to them. It's not like he failed to comment. He gave specific advice. He didn't tell them to give up being a soldier. He told them to continue taking their wage as a soldier, which is the very opposite of saying, soldiering's a bad thing, give it up. Okay, the caskism then I quote, legitimate defence can... not only a right, but a grave duty for the one who is responsible for the lives of others. The defence of the common good requires that an unjust aggressor be rendered unable to cause harm. For this reason, those who legitimately hold authority also have the right to use arms to repel aggressors against the civil community entrusted to their responsibility. So if I'm a father, of three little children um, and someone comes to attack them, it's my duty as their father to, to protect them and to protect them if necessary with lethal force. That's my job as their father. Well, the government, one of its primary functions is to defend its people against unjust aggression. but with limits. So in the same way you can't use excessive force in defending yourself as an individual, you can't use excessive force in what would then be an unjust war. And that's what we're going to be basically looking at this morning. Okay, slightly different introductory comment here. The place of peace and justice and war. So the Catechism, quoting from Gaudium Met Spez, um, this point has been made in a number of church documents, especially in the 20th century, in the context of incredible conflicts in that century, incredible loss of life. That a state of injustice is a state of a lack of peace. So to say, well, we're not fighting, I'm just taking all your water and taking your food, I'm not being violent to you, well, that is an act of violence, that is an injustice. And sometimes my using physical violence to remedy an injustice um, is a necessary means to peace. So... Quoting the Catechism paragraph there, which in turn is quoting a mixture of St. Augustine and the, Vatican, the Second Vatican Council. Respect for and development of human life require peace. Peace is not merely the absence of war, and it is not limited to maintaining a balance of powers between adversaries. Peace cannot be attained on earth without the safeguarding of the goods of persons, free communication among men, respect for the dignity of persons and peoples, and the assiduous practice of fraternity. Peace is the tranquility of order. Peace is the work of justice and effect of charity. So injustice is a lack of peace. And the question I conclude this page with is, when does the use of violence become an appropriate remedy to an injustice that's already in place. Because injustice is a lack of peace. Injustice is, in some sense, an act of violence against someone. So the answer to the question I posed, when would violence when would war be appropriate for an injustice it's kind of answered at the top of this page here with a quotation from saint thomas those who wage war justly aim at peace hence augustine says we do not seek peace in order to be at war but we go to war that we may have peace be peaceful therefore in warring so that you may vanquish those whom you war against and bring them to the prosperity of peace. It may risk stating the obvious, but what is the purpose of war? It can only ever have as its purpose the achievement of peace. So I'm guessing most of you have heard the phrase the just war criteria. So whenever there's a conflict somewhere, you'll often hear the media, if they've got some church person saying something, saying, well, this violates or this doesn't violate the the criteria of the just war. Well, what are the criteria of the just war? Well, on that table page there, I've listed a table with three columns. And part of the reason I've done that is to indicate There isn't only one criteria for the just war. Um, So I've got St. Thomas's criteria. I've got a criteria from the US Bishop's Conference in their letter, The Challenge of Peace in 1983. And then kind of our focus, how the catechism lists it. And if you look there, the same criteria crop up in each of those lists, but they're phrased slightly differently. To make a distinction that the US Bishops' Conference makes, um, we first need to ask the question about going to war, ad bellum. Um, You know the word someone who is belligerent, argumentative, disagreeable, so that's kind of what the Latin or has its Latin derivation in in Bellum what's the conditions needed to justify going to war but then even after having decided you're going to go to war what criteria need to be followed while you're at war in Bellum so that's what we're going to try and map out um, in the remaining hour So another way of phrasing it, as I write there, is whether there should be war, and if there should be war, how to engage in war. One way of phrasing this would be, um, my, my analysis as a moral theologian would be that pretty much every major war that we have fought this last century, has been unjust. And it's not been unjust because the cause was unjust, but because there was at least some part of how we engaged in the war that was unjust. And I made that observation because if Christians had been more vocal in the conversation about how to fight, we could have made those wars just. Because we did have a just cause. But because all too often we say, oh we shouldn't be fighting at all, we risk then not being listened to about anything. The Catholic tradition has a very sophisticated analysis as to how to fight. Um, We should be bringing that to bear in various discussions. Any initial comments before we start looking? kind of what this means in detail. Okay, so page three here. Um, so this is the start of my analysis of the jus ad bellum. Jus meaning justice, rights, the, the, the question of justice going to war. So three criteria on that page. These three criteria are all St. Thomas Aquinas' criteria. Um, they're also all in the catechism. First, legitimate authority. So who is going to go to war? Um, well, the public authority has responsibility for the common good and a duty to protect the common good. And uh, note that the catechism indicates that it's governments, not bishops or even the pope, that, that determines whether the just war conditions have been met. So the Catechism says, the evaluation of these conditions for moral legitimacy belongs to the prudential judgment of those who have responsibility for the common good. But that doesn't mean the bishops don't have a duty to be critiquing that um, and making sure that the government is using and explaining how a conflict fits a moral analysis. Now I flag up a particular question that the war against terror, um, now this is an old phrase by now but I'm old enough I can remember when it was a new phrase back after 9-11 and it was often said and has been often said since that this is a new type of war, that there isn't a precise enemy there isn't a precise nation being defended we're kind of defending the West against Islamic terrorism um, so who is the specific competent authority how does that fit with the traditional criteria and I note that many ancient wars fought under the classic just war criteria were actually of a so called war of terror types against guerrilla groups so actually the kind of stability of the modern nation state actually there's historically in our Christian history been lots of cases where it's been groups or the attackers have been something equivalent to a terrorist group so it's not a new set of questions but the only ones who have the authority to go to war are the ones who are responsible for the common good So in Clint Eastwood, where John Wayne gets out his guns and goes off on a vigilante spree, he doesn't have the authority to do that. The sheriff does. That's why we have sheriffs. And it's why, even though the US government um, has, I would say quite correctly, had great reservations about the United Nations as an authentically functioning institution. Nonetheless, if we're doing something international, we need the only authority there is that is international, the UN, to give some comment on that, if we're going to have legitimacy going in. Let me continue, or in a sense, clarify that with a question of just cause. So why are we going to war? Well, there has to be a just cause. So, say, war can only ever be a response to somebody else's injustice. To quote the Catechism, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. So, lasting. War may not be used as a revenge for a temporary attack. So it has to somehow be an ongoing injustice um, to merit this. Grave. That war may not be used for trivial matters. We'll come on to that when we consider the question of proportion in a bit more detail. Um, And then certain say for example we are certain that Iraq has weapons of mass destruction Um, so I was certain that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction I'd followed the news commentary Um, it seemed obvious to me Um, but when we got there they didn't Um, and that invalidated the whole justification that we'd had for going to war. So if you're gonna go to war, you have to be certain. I know that there's a distinction between moral certainty and metaphysical certainty. So in anything to do with human action, we don't have the certainty that comes, that is equivalent to two plus two equaling four. Right, so I don't know that there isn't somebody who's snuck into the room behind me and that I'm not going to punch in the face by... But I have, metaf- I have moral certainty that that isn't the case. I don't have metaphysical certainty. Yeah, so there's a degree of certainty we need to act and in parallel, a degree of certainty we need in going to war. So make
2: the... So there must be a legitimate authority um, opposing to go to war. But like what happens in the case of um, I, mean, I was just gonna read the Saints and Sinners of the Civil War in Mexico. Right, so the people in the legitimate authority were what they weren't were doing the injustice, and the people that were took it into their own hands. They weren't in legitimate authority to start this war amongst. or really the government?
0: Um. So what you're asking there, really, is the grounds for a just revolution. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah? Um, and the standard analysis covers that. The catechism talks about that. Um, but in order to have a revolution, you have to have some sense of who is going to be revolting, some... You somehow got to be responsible for the injustice done to your group, your territory, your village.
2: Um. Which is is in the book too, like the bishops were kind of hesitant for the people to react otherwise because they didn't have leaders put in place to even begin the revolution at first. It was just kind of, it was a of, very unstable.
0: So a lot of these things are interrelated, but if you have a revolution without a true leader, then you just get a lot of bloodshed and no happy result. If you have a revolution with a clearly defined leader, a George Washington figure, who in a sense can unite the people in a peaceful state (laughs) after your revolution, then the revolution has a coherence in its use of violence. Otherwise, you just have violence with no hope for end result. We'll come, return to that um, when we look at another criterion. Okay, a, clarif- a clarification in a sense on just cause, right intention. So I say this is a clarification on just cause, i.e., one must intend to pursue justice rather than intend to use a just cause as an excuse to pursue some ulterior end. And one must intend to limit oneself to one's legitimate objectives. And I give the example, the Gulf War had the just cause of liberating Kuwait. But was our real intention to gain access to the oil? Yes, yeah, so it there's A just cause is one thing, but what is your intention? Because I think we could have argued that actually access to the oil was a just cause. Um, That the world's economy needed that oil. That it wasn't just for it to be held by a dictator in that fashion. Um, That that was part of the analysis. But somehow politically, the politicians never wanted to say that. It was always just phrased in terms of liberating Kuwait from Saddam. So the Gulf War, which I know is probably before some of you were born, yes? Um, that was before the Iraq War. So Saddam invaded Kuwait. Um, we went in, liberated Kuwait and partially invaded the south of Iraq but only in as much as was necessary for the military goal of liberating Kuwait. Okay, can I just finish? and then? Um, right intention meant we didn't have a cause in that to ir- invade all of Iraq. And go and kill Saddam. Which is why, a decade later, when we did go in the whole thing, Saddam was still there. But actually in that initial just war Gulf War, there was a a use a following of this principle that we only have certain grounds to be invading, and we're limited by those grounds. That we can't just say, Well, we've started a war, so we can do whatever we like until it's until we decide it's over. Now we're limited by right intention. Sam? Yeah, I just want to... Is, is the Gulf War the same as the
3: better, Those the same thing. Yes, those
0: yes,
2: three.
0: no. Um, and so, from what I'm told, people who fought in the Gulf War will refer to the desert, um, whereas those who were in the Iraq War, it wasn't primarily desert. Um, so, yeah. So, legitimate authority, a just cause, and a right intention. Okay. Over the page, page six, four, rather. Last resort. So you can't... You don't go to war immediately. So to quote the Catechism, all other means of putting an end to it, i.e. the injustice, must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Um... Nick, would you mind reading that block quote? So this is from an article on the EWTN website on Just War. Alternatives.
3: Alternatives include one-to-one diplomacy, international pressure, economic sanctions, such tools as blockades, quarantines, covert actions, and small-scale raids that do not amount to a full-scale war. It is not necessary to employ all such measures before going to war. It is sufficient if righteous, rigorous, Regrets considerations reveal them to be impractical and effective, but it is not necessary for the aggressor to strike first. Moral certainty that the aggressor will occur is sufficient. Such certain such certainty might be present, for instance, if a party with a history of aggression began using troops, amassing troops, yeah. amassing troops or munitions. World war is possible for an aggressor to strike at a distance, order in a warning, cause mass casualties, it's important to identify potential aggressors early and determine whether he poses a
0: moral or certain danger. Let's say, for example, if an attacker threatens you with a gun, you don't need to wait for him to shoot you before defending yourself. That's because then you'd already be dead. So he points his gun at you, and you can shoot him then. Um, or even he's handling his gun in a threatening manner Saddam and the Iraq war is a curious example perhaps of this in that we had a long period of economic sanctions international pressure um we had the UN with the various inspection teams it was very obvious that he was playing games with us that he wasn't being honest but it wasn't quite clear in retrospect what he was being dishonest about um
3: Yeah, I'm wondering how the atomic like, bomb would fit into this last resort thing. Because I'm sure people argue in that with last resort, but I feel like the catechism literature to say that was definitely a not permissible moral right?
0: Yes, but for a different reason, oh, okay. um, which we'll come on to in the question of proportion. Um, Because at this stage we're thinking, can we go to war, whereas the atomic bomb is a question of how to fight once we're at war. Um, So last resort, Um, you've got to have tried other means. Um, Saddam Hussein was a curious example as well and that there was this threat or alleged threat that he had missiles he was developing missiles that he could shoot all the way Um, what was the claim tony blair had that within 45 minutes he could launch an attack on one of the western nations um, with a missile if that had been true then a first strike aggression as we had would have seemed to have been justified In terms of whether to fight. Um, As it turned out, he didn't have that capacity. Um, Probability of success. Um, So the Catechism says there must be serious prospects of success. Um, And One of the writers on Just War, Chuck Martino, summarises this I think quite well by saying it would be immoral to spill blood in vain, that you know this quest isn't going to succeed, well then you shouldn't start it. Um, And I raised the question there, if we think of Afghanistan or Iraq or Vietnam, um, all kinds of wars that in retrospect huge amounts of blood were spilt. Were they in vain? How much analysis of the probability of success had been put in there? You know, so the Iraq War, in particular, is critiqued on this that we had a clear strategy for going in, but not much of a strategy for when we would have had success, stability, be able to leave.
3: Is that a- Like if a very powerful country attacks a very weak country and the weak country has no of success, they just can't defend themselves?
0: That they should surrender immediately? Yeah. That's a good question. So um, sometimes the example would be pointed to um, the Poles in the Second World War when Germany invaded. Um, so the Poles are often very proud of their cavalry charge on their horses against the German tanks. Now was that just spilling blood in vain? There would seem to be a, a stage in which, whether you'd be waging war, or to just immediately revert or transform to some kind of guerrilla tactics, but that you can't realistically, You don't have an army that's going to be able to fight that army. Here I'm flagging up a principle without uh, an easy application, but that's that's the principle. Last resort, war is a last resort, Um, there has to be a, a reasonable prospect of success. Otherwise, you're just spilling blood and pain.
3: I have to take this too far, but would there be a reason for like a country to come in? I guess like, you know, like, in, like in that instance, like Britain, like they, they swooped in and they kind of tried to like take the heat away from Germany and attacking Poland and such and America to come in. Would it be reasonable to say that bigger countries could come and protect ones? The
0: there you're flagging up the question of legitimate authority. So... Um, Germany has invaded Poland, in a sense what business is that of the British to get involved? Now actually it was our business because we had a treaty with Poland, Um, so therefore we had a duty to defend Poland. By the time we got around to doing anything, Poland was long conquered. America only got involved because America didn't have treaties with any of those invaded nations. America only got involved at a stage when actually America was attacked by German or the Japanese. Um, in practice, America was involved in terms of supporting the British when the British were all that was left of Western Europe um, but weren't actually in the war until actually they were brought in by being attacked. In theory the United Nations should provide, should be the organisation by which you go to the Security Council, you say Germany has invaded Poland, we all together are gonna sort Germany out. Um, If however the United Nations is financially corrupt, politically corrupt, politically ineffective, a cause could be made, an argument could be made that America would have a duty on some occasions has to step up to the plate even though there isn't the legitimate authorities saying and doing nothing but that does become much less clear on how you're going to justify it but to say we are the biggest nation in the world and we can't just stand by and watch some injustice the problem is how many injustices are you going to get involved in we tend to get involved in the ones that are financially affecting us. Um, So we invaded Iraq and got rid of Saddam, but all kinds of other African dictators, you know, we haven't gone in after, we didn't go into Zimbabwe. Okay, the last of the criteria in terms of going to war is the criteria of proportionality. So I say war must be a means proportionate to the end being sought. And that entails foreseeing the expected outcome of the war. So the catechism phrases it the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders. Graver than the evil to be eliminated. The power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. So when we went into Iraq, to come back to that example again, um, you know, with, with shock and awe, we went in and from a distance destroyed their entire infrastructure before we went in, which meant it was relatively safe for our soldiers but the human suffering that was caused was colossal and supposedly we were going in because this was a horrible dictator oppressing his people. Um, that has to be part of the analysis. Is the destruction and damage of the war going to do more harm than just leaving him in place? example is about house wage war, oh, okay. so the answer is yes, but in order to say why we need to be into this category. Okay, let's, let's move on to page five and the in criteria. Now, what does this mean? Well, I quote from the catechism there. Um, the church and human reason both assert the permanent validity of the moral law during armed conflict. The mere fact that war has regressively broken out does not mean that everything becomes licit between warring parties. So, you know, George Patton's quote, War is Hell, is often quoted, but that doesn't mean that, therefore, it's going to be terrible so we can do whatever we like during it. The moral law continues to hold, not just beginning to decide to go to war, but Every step through the war, the moral law holds. And there are two criteria that are pivotal in this regard discrimination and proportion. this is what we're going to unpack in these next two pages. So discrimination. Soldiers, civilians, non-combatants, wounded soldiers, prisoners, these are all different groups of people, different categories. How you behave towards them should recognise the fact that they're different. So the general principle there, the direct and voluntary killing of an innocent human life is always gravely immoral. That's where we started our analysis of the Fifth Commandment in our last lecture. And I say civilians are always considered to be innocent. Sam, can you read that quote for us? The issue is not so much
2: that that non-combatants in some way mysterious in some mysterious way gain an immunity against attack, which the fellow citizen combatants lack, but rather that they retain the immunity against attack that is a feature of normal human relationships.
0: Would you mind reading footnote 12? So there's a block quote amplifying that. Start
2: start soldiers. Soldiers as a class are set apart from the world of peaceful activity. They are trained to fight, provide with weapons, uh, required to fight on command. He can be personally attacked only because he already is a fighter. He has been made into a dangerous man, and if conscripted, rather than voluntary, si- voluntarily signing up to fight, though his options may have been few, it is nevertheless accurate to say that he has allowed himself to be made into a dangerous man. For that reason, he finds himself
0: in danger. So why are you attacking the soldier? Because he is a soldier. A soldier is trained to fight. He has become a threat to you by being a soldier. And that's why you relate to the soldier differently to the way you relate to the civilian. you're not killing him as an individual, but as a soldier. Whereas the civilians, you have no right to attack. Um, So, Lots of examples in both recent and long-term history, this distinction is ignored. So, um, in order to defeat your enemy nation, you attack his civilians. Um, So here in America, in the US Civil War, um, was it General Sherman who burned all the No, yeah. Right. So that was an attack on civilians, on farms, on ordinary people. Um, That is exactly what the Catechism is condemning. You can't attack innocent people. That, yes, indirectly, they are part of the enemy nation, they are part of what is supporting the soldiers, but they're only doing that very indirectly. You therefore have no grounds to attack them. The soldier, because he is trained to fight, because he has put himself in a position of violence against you, you may attack. The civilian, you may not. He has the category of innocent human. Okay, I give two examples on that page, A and B. First A, which I say is, relatively speaking, a clear example. A military airstrike hits an enemy military base that contains some civilians. So there's discrimination and that the aim was military with a side effect of a limited number of civilian casualties. There's proportion if the principle of double effect is analysed and there is proportion. So the proportion is going to be a matter of how much non military damage is being done. Less clear examples in B civilians who are building bombs and artillery for the army. Now that would normally be seen as a licit military target. So during the Second World War, um, the British bombed the military factories in Germany, because they were military factories. Now, if we had bombed the factories that were making um, spaghetti, you know, that yes, spaghetti is a general thing supporting the enemy nation, but they're not connected to the military in that direct way that merits them being attacked. Civilian farmers growing food that feeds the aggression, aggressor nation. So this is unlikely to be a licit attack. Um, I then quote uh, the philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe who says, I, civilians who are, who are not fighting and are not engaged in supplying those who are, who are fighting with the means of fighting, i.e., they are making things that would be needed in one form or another in peacetime as well as in war. I think that's a useful distinction. If what's being made you'd be making even if you weren't at war, then that's not a licit target. But if what you're making you're only making because of the war, that puts it as a illicit target, that puts it as part of the war. Discrimination. Innocent human life may not be directly attacked. Millet soldiers are no longer in that category because they are soldiers. Okay, let's move over the page. Um, After I've gone through this page, I'm then gonna pause for some more questions, because we'll then, in a sense, have all the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, So, top of page six, I'm drawing your attention to how modern warfare, and by modern I mean basically 20th century, has changed um, the whole analysis here. So, say, new weaponry, and accompanying strategies with that new weaponry, led many to question the notion of a just war. So first we had carpet bombing of civilian populations in World War II. So the Germans bombed British civilian cities. Not military cities, but directly attached to civilians. And in return, we did the same to them. Places like Dresden were utterly, utterly flattened. Um, The entire city turned into a firebomb not to attack the military, but to attack the civilians and intimidate the civilians into surrender. Two, atomic bombs used in World War II against the civilian population of Japan. And then we had the weird thing in the Cold War where we had not actually missiles being fired, but they were aimed. At the enemy cities, at the enemy civilians. And some concluded that these invalidate the just war criteria, but the above three scenarios are more accurately seen as failures to apply the criteria rather than invalidating the criteria themselves. And a moral theologian of the time um, phrased it that the Ten Commandments do not lose their imperative. By reason of the fact they're violated. Um, as I put in italics, the failure to apply the criteria invalidates the wars. It doesn't invalidate the criteria. Have any of you heard the phrase total war? So this is the very opposite of discrimination. Total war, you attack the entire enemy nation. Total war against the nation 's civilians is condemned. Um, repeated popes um, though I note that there isn 't a precise definition of what constitutes total war, but as i 've said there the northern attacks on southern civilians and the agriculture in the u s civil war would be one example of it okay, our last of this analysis and here we are still in the how to engage war section. Question proportion. In each individual military action the damage to be done and the costs to be incurred must be justified by the military gain expected from the action. This is the proportionality criteria of use ad bellum* applied to the conduct of the war itself. I note for modern warfare, moral warfare, um, a target may not be a direct attack on civilians and the damage to civilians must be proportionate to the strategic gain. Then I ask a question in bold and italics there, would an American nuclear strike against a Soviet city that killed one million Russians that saved two million Americans be proportionate. And the American Bishops Conference said it would be a perverted political policy or moral casuistry which tried to justify using a weapon which indirectly or unintentionally killed a million innocent people because they happened to live near significant a military significant time. Casuistry. Um, Casuistry is always a term, or almost always, a term of abuse. In this context, it means when you're, you're playing games, basically, and, and picking holes in how you argue something. Um, saying that the principles don't hold in this case is, is literally what you'd be arguing. So casuistry is when you're basing things on cases and you're saying it doesn't apply in this case. Okay, let's flip back to page two and look at all those criteria together and see what questions that leaves you wanting to ask.
2: Yep. Yeah. So, three categories here. Which one takes
3: precedence, or is it? Are they all important? I mean, like, if you're
2: trying
0: to make a decision, which one do you go to? Um. All of the criteria are actually present in all of them. So the, the catechism's point that the moral law retains validity throughout, even during a war. Um basically means that the criteria listed in the other columns are actually in the catechisms list as well. So basically the US bishops in listing what added up to nine criteria might seem to have created new criteria, but really all they've done is they've made explicit what was already included in St. Thomas. The way the catechism lists it, it doesn't list, I think it deliberately avoids a checklist fashion. Check, 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 push the button. How many of you have seen the film Eye in the Sky? Do you know what it, so it is, About um, So Eye in the Sky is about a satellite that is looking down, I can't remember if they even tell us which country they're looking at, but they're looking at a terrorist's house and trying to decide whether to strike from the sky, eye in the sky, and kill the terrorist. And the issue that they're examining as they're looking on their satellite picture is who else is around how many civilians um there's i think a little child who's kind of visibly there on the outside of the house they're kind of waiting for the child to move away Um, what's fascinating in that film and i would really recommend it to you as a piece of good moral theology is how Catholic the analysis is. So all of the criteria they're discussing are exactly what the church would want them to be discussing. And from what I what little I know, I think that is how our military operates. Now whether they are applying the criteria well is another question. But somehow Our criteria are what structures the debate and analysis of these different strikes. And I would say that is exactly the kind of analysis we want to be pushing forward so that we make what's happening happen in an ethical manner. So that we don't just wash our hands of our duty to defend ourselves or of our duty to defend others, but that we limit ourselves in how we do that, to do it in a limited manner that is therefore a moral manner, a more targeted manner that is therefore discriminatory.
2: Uh, so this is another thing that's kind of on my mind. It may not be a question, but I'll just talk and we'll see what happens. So, kind of to that point of that movie you were telling us about, yeah. Drone warfare is like very new these days, right? So
3: a lot of like drone attacks just are taking place from a guy who's sitting in a room miles and miles away from what he's actually doing. Um, and then earlier in the lecture, we talked about kind of like a, the definition of a soldier. And like how you can attack certain soldiers based on uh, like how they identify themselves and what they're trained to do, but like these people sitting in like the room, they're not actually like soldiers. They're kind of just like sitting at, just like doing, just like a computer game, almost, almost like Call of Duty. So I'm worried, catechism like said, the church says not about like how the mor- the morality of that situation, right? Like it's almost like you're killing people as like a video game. You're really disconnected. From
0: Yeah, no, I don't think it has to be man-on-man. Now, where would I find basis for that in the catechism? I think throughout warfare there's always been um, shooting from a distance, whether it's with a bow and arrow or whatever. The question is whether your target is licit and whether it's proportionate. And whether it's discriminatory,
3: Joe. Right. The, I mean, the military has the obligation and the duty to protect their own soldiers. So why wouldn't you want your soldier as far away from the battlefield as possible? So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not defending it. I'm just saying it's part of the strategy. it's uh, how do you attack without losing?
0: The risk I see with that analysis, and it's been a big part of the analysis of the Iraq war, is our politicians want zero casualties on our side, and therefore we're willing to tolerate a hugely disproportionate amount of civilian casualties on the other side. And that, that then is a lack of proportion. That's politically driven, not morally driven.
3: Would it be possible, like could would it be allowed for someone to have an advantage that would make it almost most certain available manual? Rather than like, like so like the idea of thinking of is if you're like defending your house and someone breaks into the knife and you have a gun, you're almost certain that
0: You don't need to kill him dead. Now, it it often is the case that somebody attacking you with a knife and attacking you in your home and maybe a physical build, that the only way to safely incapacitate him is with lethal force. But you shouldn't leap to lethal force as your first port of call. Now that said, if somebody's attacking me during the night in my home, the whole balance of my right to defend myself is in favour of me using increasingly high violence because of what he has manifested and how he's approaching me. We've had so little questions today because the topic's so big, maybe. Um, you know, this is only an introductory course in everything that includes what we're doing today. Um, I'm sure Father Lou would be not quite horrified, but um, how have, uh, have briefly I'm doing this, but he would have much more to say. Um, Okay, let's go to page seven a couple of points to cover um, just basically three brief points question of pacifism conscription and conscientious objection so pacifism what is pacifism it's when you refuse to engage in any violence and only use peaceful means against your enemy so the example I put there would be Gandhi's passive resistance to the British Empire in India. Um, and he won. He got what he wanted. Um, would that have worked against Hitler? Um, so the church gives us I say that qualified approval to such methods of nonviolent resistance. So, but firstly, using nonviolent resistance does not absolve you of your obligation to use violent means if violent means are necessary to protect the rights and duties of others or of the community itself. And so that rejects the notion that a Christian may exclusively commit himself to pacifism. Um, so the US bishops speak of a complementary relationship between nonviolent means and violence the latter being appropriate as a last resort. So if you say, I'm a Christian, I'm against all war, well, that actually is rejecting the entire Christian tradition in this regard. And as I started by saying, it's very difficult to reconcile that with our Lord's words to the soldiers who came to him. Conscription. So, so spell it out there all citizens have a duty to support and promote the common good Um, and the government has the specific responsibility of determining means by which citizens are required to support the common good and that can include conscription josh would you mind reading that block quote public authorities
1: public authorities in this case have the right and duty to impose on citizens obligation necessary for national defense. Those who are sworn to serve their country in the armed forces are servants of the security and freedom of nations. If They carry out their duty honorably. They truly contribute to the common good of the nation
0: and the maintenance of peace. Now, what about conscientious objection? So say, not all war is just. That's a simple statement of fact sometimes a government conscripts citizens to fight in an unjust war. So the catechism says, public authorities should make equitable provision for those who, for reasons of conscience, refuse to bear arms. These are nonetheless obliged to serve the human community in some other way. So take say, false reasons for conscientious objection. One, all war is unjust, as I've said that contradicts Christian faith. Or, I am afraid. Well, that isn't conscientious objection, that's avoiding your duty to the common good. Um, True reasons for conscientious objection, one, this particular war is unjust. I add the clarification, in general though, it is the government's duty to determine war, not the individual. Two, this particular act during a war is unjust but again I note in general a soldier needs to obey orders and presume the chain of command acts in good faith in both cases a person should be willing to die rather than act unjustly rather willing to die rather than to sin so you're a soldier in the field and your captain command you to kill the civilians there you know you should be willing to die, be willing to be shot by your captain rather than do something you know to be intrinsically evil and if you think that the particular war your country is engaged in is immoral you'd have a duty not to to be conscripted do you have yeah. yeah so
1: there's a movie called Glory yeah have you seen
0: it no
1: it's about like this troop of African Americans who are sent to be oh the yes yes, yes yes no I have seen it yeah go and on. would you say that that would be then unjust that you know they should they could have you know you know are they just supposed to be willing to die rather than sin even though it's it's uh, like a you know it's just they're discriminated against like being put in the front lines because of
0: does that make sense what i'm saying um but the cause they were fighting in was just the reason to not take part is because of the high bloodshed they expected
1: like certain death like
0: I don't think that would have been grounds. Um, a just cause, a high casualty rate, um, that's a combination that goes in many walls. Um, that That would be my analysis. And that you, as a soldier on the ground, do you really know the, what your commanders know in terms of the battle plan? So, yes, some soldiers are more at risk than others in any battle plan. Um, okay, last question. So
2: you- Say you have an obligation to stand up like if you drafted, and it's an unjust cause, the war that has cause, would you say to
0: stand up against that? So you'd have a duty to stand up against that. Um, and you would be humiliated by presumably the society around you. So my last but one parish, there was, you know, obviously a very old man who had refused to fight in the Second World War. He was a conscientious objector. Um, and he thought that war wasn't the way forward Um, and he obviously was treated as a traitor by everyone in the village and whatever around him but he felt that was the morally right thing to do I think he made an erroneous judgment of conscience but It was his judgement of conscience and he therefore should have followed it, and he did, um, to his credit I think. Um, Very briefly summarising, we've been looking today, violence in self defence, violence in defence of the common good in just war. the Christian tradition as specified in the catechism has criteria to anal- analyse first whether you should go to war in a particular scenario and even if you should go to war how you should engage in that war um, and tragically as I said Mayanassas would be many of the wars we've been engaged in in the last century have had a just cause but a significant part of how we fought them has not been just and maybe if we pushed harder in terms of trying to get ethical analysis into the mechanisms of war we could have avoided that